Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Caxton's podcast, Timeless Truths in Medicine and Marriage. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Caxton. Dr. Caxton, how are you? And uh, excited about our topic today. Last time we talked about the Nobel Peace Prize involving medicine, and that really involved a lot of conversations that people, how you choose it, you know? So those are the great topics that we bring out that you could keep talking about for months or years, for sure. Yes. Hi, thanks, Neil. Happy New Year to you and Happy, Happy New Year to everyone listening. Uh, today, we just want to see how did we get here, uh, mainly in the United States. And Neil, I want you to just looking at the question, what do you think? How do you think we got here to where we are today? Before I share some of these highlights that I have today, what are your thoughts? How do we get here regarding the in country? terms of COVID? COVID. Okay, COVID. In the United States. Because yeah, as COVID. A I think we got here because of our uh, lack of understanding it in the world once yes. it, it hit China. Yes. And we really, for the first two to three months when it was hitting China, really didn't think it would ever come to the United States yes. or Western Europe. And I think that uh, we just really didn't... Um, look at what was happening there and then when it hit us we really didn't have any plans and that's how we are where we are today where where is the virus going to take us uh especially with uh president-elect biden's decision uh joe um the basically what he's going to decide for the country how he's going to combat this virus versus how president trump did yes but there you go that's where I see what we, what we got here today, meaning just lack of really understanding the virus from the beginning and making many, many mistakes. And this is worldwide mistakes, not just United States mistakes. Yes. Uh, we've peaked at 1.8 million uh, deaths around the world. In the US, we're over 330,000 uh, for sure. And the numbers in the U.S. seem to just keep on climbing. My take on this, Neil, is a couple of things. I look back, I try to figure out why are we here and what can we do? It's not just putting blame on some people, but pushing responsibility to people and saying, this is where you're going to take responsibility. And I'm sure on previous uh, podcasts, even the ones I did with you with uh, Dr. Henderson, you heard me say, Dr. Fauci has a lot of responsibility. And I want to clarify something on that one before I go on. And that is, you know, in Egypt, when the Pharaoh in Exodus 1 decided that the children of Israel, they were living comfortably, they were doing well, either in business, in famine, whatever the Israelites were doing in Egypt at the time. But they said a king came up, became king, who did not know Joseph. And he decided he was gonna punish and make life miserable for the Israelites. But there was something unique that the Egyptian Pharaoh told the midwives. He said, when they have children, if it's a girl, keep it. We'll use it as a sex slave or something. If it's a boy, kill it. It's keep it or kill it. And these were the midwives. And the role of those midwives really was in the healthcare profession. The picture I have of the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, and the DHHS, 
is similar to that of the midwives. You know, God has blessed this country so much. And there's some things that we take for granted sometimes. Occasionally, we are thankful that we have those things. Believe it or not, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the DHHS, CMS, all those healthcare entities owned or working for the government, supposedly for the people, they are the midwives of America's healthcare. And in a sense, over the months that we've looked at, my first factor here is the midwives of America's health have failed Americans. They failed because, you know, we talked about announcing to people on January 14, the WHO saying there's no problem. And on 24th, um, the NIH, uh, NIAID head, I don't wanna mention his name anymore because it looks like I'm launching a personal attack, said there was no need to worry. But you see, I looked at the research that the NIH was doing on coronavirus. It was several fold. I didn't understand that they were working on vaccines to be honest with you, but I knew they were working to assist so many research laboratories around the world to develop a deadlier vaccine, I mean, a deadlier virus. Did you know that? They actually have what's their really? oh, yes, a, a bioweapon by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. They were working and I got a document, I had to have a document to speak like this, that said around 2014, when a patent had been granted to one of these research companies, um, for a deadlier virus, the NIH then sent out a letter to several, in fact, I think they just sent a bulletin out and then announced to all the research they were funding to either generate or create genetically engineer a virus that was deadlier than what we had before in the SARS-CoV-1 they send a letter to them saying we have some gain of function and therefore we want everybody else to halt their gain of function research. And what gain of function means in this sense is that they've created a virus, they've gotten what they're looking for. So any other research, they're not going to fund it. I think this was in October, 2014. I don't have the exact date. And so that uh, proliferation of uh, research into the goal was we will make as many deadly viruses as possible and then we'll test those viruses and try to develop vaccines so that if Russia or Iraq or any other country comes to us and tries to attack us with biological weapons, then we will be ready. And it all looked good until the coronavirus came on the scene. But Neil, I have a question for you. Just one, yes. a very simple one. <laughs> If you were the uh, CEO of a pharmaceutical company and you had been working on a vaccine technology like the mRNA vaccine, and you've been working on it for the past 10, 12 years, you spent maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on it and you spent several hundreds or maybe tens of millions getting patents. And you now have an opportunity to uh, create an actual vaccine for an actual disease, would you, knowing that the coronavirus 
is susceptible to hydroxychloroquine and maybe even ivermectin. Would you, you've developed a technology that can release a vaccine that may work against right. this virus. Would you be happy or in favor of any of your research professors or doctors publishing articles? Now, remember you spent a lot of money, close to even a billion on mRNA vaccine technology. Would you be happy or would you sponsor any of your professors or doctors in your research labs or people you give grant money every year to publish articles showing that cheap hydroxychloroquine that it works in corona vaccines, I mean, in the coronavirus uh, pandemic. What are the like, what's the likelihood that you will encourage that kind of nonsense in quote? A drug like hydroxychloroquine that's just a few pennies or dollars versus your technology that you've already spent almost a billion dollars on and you have an opportunity to bring a vaccine into the market and make a trillion dollars. Would you say, no, people are dying. Um, no, we cannot use that technology now. Let's just let them use hydroxychloroquine. Or would you say, let's kill hydroxychloroquine? What do you think is a typical manner for a CEO of a pharmaceutical company? I don't know. I mean, I think that you're going to, it's about making money, Dr. Jackson. So you think that ultimately at the end of the day, if they came up with this great scientific vaccine, they don't want something that's going to treat this virus so easily that yes. it stops everything. Yes. I think that's what got us to where we are today. But that's not the only factor. You know, making money is not greed. You say making money is a part of who we are in nature as humans. I think the idea of greed comes in when harm is involved and it's terrible harm that it's out of proportion to the profit that you're going to make and actually harms in so many ways that the profit can never ever justify the loss and the harm to people. I think that's when we move from profit to greed because there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money or making money to start off with. And so the greed is a factor. Um, and there's so many reasons why greed can be a factor. But the major thing I think I had to be looking for is where as doctors could we have done something different? Because when you think about the people who were using uh, research funding to either blackmail or hold in institutions to ransom or brilliant doctors who are used to doing research being told don't publish anything about chloroquine. If we say, no matter what anybody says in the pharmaceutical industry, is there one thing, one single thing that could have changed this pandemic's face, keeping in mind that everybody else did what they kept on doing. I think we doctors could have done a whole lot differently. And I say that because I read an article by a lady called uh, Lisa Schwartz. She passed away at the age of 55, very young, very, very brilliant lady who talked about how drug companies have infiltrated the journalistic aspects of medicine and even the uh, media and how they mislead us. And she's saying, maybe they don't know why they're misleading us or maybe it's not intentional. But she mentioned something and I, wanna, I want every uh, person listening to this to share this with their doctor. 
As doctors, you see us as extremely competent and capable. Yes, clinically, that's who we are. That's what makes us doctors. But we have an Achilles heel. That weakness, Neil, is in statistics. You see, we don't know how to interpret statistics. That is 90 to 95% of doctors. And because we don't know how to interpret statistics, Lisa Schwartz actually says that many doctors, patients, journalists, and politicians do not understand health statistics. She calls it statistical illiteracy. We're illiterates for the most part, most of us as doctors, no matter how good right. we are. And it's because we're not really good with interpreting statistics that when we see a paper like the recovery study, uh, the solidarity, all those studies that were done, because we don't understand how to interpret those numbers that we see in those papers, every one of us virtually kept saying hydroxychloroquine is ineffective because that's what the studies show. You know, but we are saying that because we could not understand and interpret accurately what was in the paper. Every epidemiologist who is a clinician who reads those journals that were published last year and understands it knows hydroxychloroquine is actually effective and the studies were reported wrongly. Now, it doesn't matter what NIH, FDA, CDC says. If we as clinicians knew how to interpret those studies, the majority of us, we will right. have been prescribing hydroxychloroquine, regardless exactly. of what the FDA says. And we will have been able to curtail this pandemic, an epidemic in the US, long before the uh, Fauci said in July that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. A lot of doctors will have been prescribing it and we will have put a halt to this uh, pandemic. I'm saying that because we wanna look forward and look back at the same time and say, what happens if something like this happens again? What do we do? Do we just passively sit down in our offices waiting for the CDC to tell us what to do? Because you think, you think things are going to change uh, under the new administration regarding HCQ? Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, actually, I'll say no. Why? Because I've always thought that Republicans, they want you to make money. They want to make money. And that Republicans know exactly how to make money. I've also felt that Democrats, you have a few brilliant spotlights like Bloomberg and stuff like that. But I've always looked at Democrats as policy makers. They don't know how to make money. They only know how to make policy. So sometimes it's beneficial when they make those policies and the poor are able to get an elevation through the programs that you know are made. But you know, I think anyone who is going to give a Democrat money to make them do whatever they want them to do is more likely. If you compare Republicans and Democrats, I think a Democrat knows less about finances. They may know it theoretically in their books, but in the real world that we live in, I think more Republicans live in the real world in that sense. They don't have a utopian mentality. So any opportunity to, be, to get a donation for money, a Democrat will hang on to it. 
far more than a Republican. I mean, that doesn't mean that one is better than the other in that sense. But when you think of the major problem we say we have is big farmer, big farmer versus Trump and big farmer versus Biden. Big farmer will win any day. Look at uh, Donald Trump. He has forced big farmer to lower its prices on drugs starting I think January something. Nobody in the Democratic Party can do that successfully like the way he did that. And a few other things. So I yeah. don't think, uh, Joe, when we now have an mRNA vaccine, in fact, he might make policy to enforce that everybody gets the vaccine because he's got to, you know, he's got to get, they, they like to have money on the side. Um, and to me, a, a Republican knows how to work for his money. The Democrat knows how to make policies so he can get money and they can get bribes easily. And we've seen that in so many instances. So I'm not so sure that Uncle Joe is going to be able to bring hydroxychloroquine, except this pandemic shamefully continues to escalate in the US. And people will have to say shamefully, you know what, maybe we need to say, come back to hydroxychloroquine, come back to ivermectin. But that would be bad because that means uh, a lot of lives unnecessarily will still be lost this year and it's no longer necessary. And so again, I don't know what your take is on that. I think um, hydroxychloroquine has its place. We've kicked it out. And the reason number one that they kicked it out is because Big Farmer saw an opportunity and it doesn't matter who dies between January and whenever the uh, vaccine comes out and is given an EUA, whoever dies, dies. They don't care. As far as I'm concerned, that's the way I look at that. The second part is the statistical illiteracy of the majority of us as doctors. And I think the third thing is the burnout of doctors. You know, about 78% in one study, just a survey by the American Physician Foundations found that, that amongst about, about 9,000 doctors, 78% of them were burnt out. Oh my goodness. I mean, and, yeah. you know, we can't really put up, a, if you're burnt out, you cannot put up a fight against Big Farmer, against the NIH, against the CDC, FDA, and all those things. A lot of things will be going on in your mind. You cannot put up a professionally sound battle against people who have authority or seem to have authority over you. It's impossible. So I guess if I'm able to put up a fight, maybe I'm not as burnt out as those guys. But the fact remains, we are so burnt out. Just picture this, Neil. You take your car to the uh, mechanic and the, you tell the mechanic you want a 1030 or 10W30, whatever they call it. And your mechanic says, um, no, you're not allowed to use a 1030. You say, it's your car. And he says, no, I just came up from the insurance company. They said, only use this on your car. And you go back and forth. It doesn't make any sense for anybody to dictate what you put into your car at that level, does it? But that's what, that's what we're getting to with the vaccine. And I, I need to remind listeners of one thing. We're talking about how did we get here? We mentioned the literacy, statistical illiteracy and abuse. And the greed and abuse, and I think unnecessary people were going to die because they were predicting that many would die, knowing that they're going to hold back the actual treatment like hydroxychloroquine with uh, zinc and zithromax, and later on, ivermectin, they will keep on holding it back. And as you've seen, up till today, you don't hear Fauci say anything about ivermectin. 
why would he say anything about ivermectin when he's put and has joined forces with Moderna to develop a vaccine as far back as 2011, 2013? Um, I don't see if he's going to make profit for those people that have trusted him. He's got to keep quiet. And I'm sure that's why they've kept completely quiet about uh, ivermectin. So, yeah, this is scary. It's a scary situation because if we can't cure it and then it, again, people spread the virus still, we could be sitting in the same position six months from now. Absolutely. And that's the big concern. And you hear about the mutation, right? <laughs> the mutation, yeah. I think the mutation on a spike protein, I don't think if there's an actual treatment that it will make any difference. If we admit that there are some ways to treat this thing, a lot of other countries have picked up the baton as far back as April, May, and I've started even Germany. The death rates in Germany were low. I mean, they had the spots of incidences of uh, occurrences of new infections, but German, Germans have been using hydroxychloroquine and they don't even get into the controversy, you know, and they've got excellent results, you know, but there was a story I wanted to share about just to drive on this point about statistical illiteracy. It was about 1995, the, in England, there's this committee on the safety of medicines. They had a, a report from some doctors that there was a research was done showing that third generation uh, birth control pills were causing blood clots in the legs and the brain uh, mainly in the legs and in the lungs, pulmonary embolism. And they said, it's 100%, okay? So when the woman, when they put this to the journalist, the journalist put that in the news. So because they said it was 100%, everybody, that means everybody that takes that pill has double the risk of getting a clot in the lungs and in the legs. You might be surprised. Once that reached the wow. public, guess what happened? 190,000 general practitioners, that's why they call them GP in London, received a letter, a flyer from the government saying, this is what we found, so be careful. Um, and so it was 100%. But the truth of it is, it's not 100%. It was one in 7,000. You see it? So it went from one in 7,000 people to two in 7,000 people. But when they put the news on the television stations and on the radio, they said a 100% increased risk of having a clot in the lung and in the legs. So you know how that drama unfolded? It led to an additional 13,000 additional abortions that year, okay? because women were afraid who needed birth control pills. I'm not pro-abortion, but this is just a consequence of giving false news to people. When they heard it was 100%, everybody that was taking their birth control pills stopped taking their birth control pills. That subsequent year, they, they say the government, because of a result of abortion, spent about $70 million extra because of a single misinterpretation of statistics by the general practitioners, the doctors, almost 200,000 of them, and by the media and by government officials. And so uh, this is a scare 
But when you say 100%, it's the same thing with cholesterol medicines. Cholesterol medicines increase or reduce your likelihood of a heart attack or stroke, maybe about 2%. But if the risk before was uh, 4% and you dropped it to 2%, it's still four out of 100 or two out of 100. They will say it right. increase, exactly. you know, they'll double the numbers. And you'll think, and here's one thing I want everybody to be aware of. And whenever there is a risk of harm, the, they will use statistics so you don't see the harm for what it really is. And whenever there is a benefit, they will use such large numbers so you'll think there's more benefit to a drug than it is. So let's go to the mRNA vaccine, for example. They told us that there were four out of 40,000 adverse effects when they were doing the clinical trials. Neil, I don't know whether you remember that. Part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Four out of 40,000. Now, I have some dates here in front of me because I had to go pull this information right from the CDC, not the enemy, not from... This is on the Pfizer vaccine, and this is not from the Moderna website. This is from the Center for Disease Control. So by December 17, they had given about 67,000 first shots of the vaccine. And remember, out of 40,000, they told us there were four adverse effects. So out of 67,000, there should be six or seven adverse effects. Am I, you get the idea? Yeah, yeah exactly. But they were 1,476, over 200 times the number of adverse effects. And these were not just adverse, these were serious adverse effects that required going to a doctor unable to work or unable to do any activities of daily living significantly that they were able to do. They had to be almost on entire bed rest. So for 40,000 in the clinical trial, they said they had only four people. And if you add that up and say eight people. Now in 67,000 or 68,000 patients roughly, we shouldn't have more than seven or eight um, or even 12, but we have 1,476 over 200 times. So when they got to December 18, 112,807 people had gotten the vaccine. Out of that, there were 3,150. The number had basically more than doubled. So what am I saying here? Well, you want to get the vaccine because they told you the vaccine is safe. That's not a safety. If you think that's safety, wait till people start showing up. I, I guess we'll never know how unsafe this vaccine is because I the can't, media... Uh, yeah, the, we're going to be very interesting. There's a lot of different things, and I think that's something we need to discuss in our next podcast. So yes. anything to wrap up today's episode? I think the episode was great information regarding specifically enough, where do we get from here? Where are we now? I think we're going to go back to just telling drug companies, stop telling us about vaccines. We know your vaccines are there, but we want treatments. Okay. And number one, hydroxychloroquine is still out there. The jury is out for people who have enough clinical knowledge. Ivermectin is there. And I want people to start talking to their senators that those two treatments are real treatments. Vaccines won't prevent you from spreading the infection. When you ask the drug companies, they'll say, we don't know. How long does this immunity from the vaccine last? We don't know. Does this 
vaccine prevent you from dying from infection? If you get it, they don't know. Does this vaccine prevent you from getting hospitalized? They don't know. Therefore, we don't know here that are extremely important. And if that's the case, then we need to have them give us a go ahead on known treatments that they've crushed or tried to hide from the general public and use statistics to blind doctors to the exact efficacy of these other drugs. I think those drugs work. We need to get them to say, we need treatments, not just vaccines, because vaccines do not prevent us from spreading the infection. All right, well, fantastic. All right, we can check you out all the different places, social media wise. Your website, Dr. Caxton, for people to go to, where can they go? www.drcaxton.com. And I'm on Facebook. I think that's uh, Dr. Caxton O'Perry. And um, I think, Neil, that's all I have today. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It was great. Great information. Everyone needs to check out and look forward to next week's uh, next podcast for sure. So take care, everyone. And that was Dr. Caxton's podcast. Take care. Thanks, Dr. Caxton. Thank you, Neil. Okay, bye.